So for what seems like 75 years ago, we started a series called A Heart to Build, Being a People of Purpose. And when I was away in Israel, I found out that you don't say Nehemiah, Nehemiah, you say it, Nehemiah. But that's all you're getting, because that's really hard to say all the way through, and I might need more water than I've got. Um, But we've come to the end. So for those of you who've missed the series, you can find them on our podcasts on elimlifechurch.co.uk under the media section. So please, if you want to catch up on what we're doing, I don't really have enough time to go through all 13 chapters with you this morning. But the whole idea of it was this man who was caught up with this vision of a city that had supposed to reflect the glory of God, had supposed to be a place where God's very presence dwelt, and it had been broken and neglected. And so very boldly, he goes to the king that he works for, and God amazingly provides resources and provision. And together with the people they build, they face challenges, they have to pray, they have to encounter things. And it leads to a spiritual renewal and revival. Not a sense of kind of like, woohoo, happy clappy, but they discover again the work of God, and it causes them to look at their hearts and to go, we're not living right with God, to repent and reflect And come to a moment of reset. And then last week, this incredible chapter 12, full of joy and excitement and wonder. As they celebrate all that God has done with them and through them and for them. And then you get to the end of the book. But before we get there, I want to set the scene a little bit for us. Now, I don't know where you are with God in terms of your relationship with God, your belief in him, or even what you think about this man called Jesus. But the moment that you say yes to Jesus, or the moment that you said yes to Jesus, the very moment, whether it was a dramatic fashion, a blinding light, suddenly you realize God is real, or whether it was a more gradual revelation that God loves me. The moment that you said yes, the moment that your heart realized God loves me, Jesus died for me, my sin is forgiven, and my life now belongs to God, in that very moment, a huge exchange took place. And an amazing journey of faith began. Or, if you haven't yet made that decision, can begin for you. Because of Jesus, you move from darkness to light. Because of Jesus, you move from being trapped in sin to being forgiven. Because of Jesus, you move from being separated from God for eternity to restored to right relationship with God for eternity. Because of Jesus, you move from servants to friends. Because of Jesus, you move from lost to found, from unrighteous to righteous, from slaves to sons and daughters. An incredible exchange takes place when you say yes to following Jesus. Paul paints it in these words in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. He's like, God gives you a fresh start, a reset moment, a moment where the old way of thinking and living and being is gone and dealt with, and you get to be a new creation, a new person in Christ that comes with a new way of living and a new heart and new ideas and new ways of being. 
You have a new identity with a new purpose. Your status has been upgraded, not just on Facebook. And you exist to enjoy God, to live with him and for him. Peter uses these words. You are a chosen people. Isn't that lovely? Chosen, picked out, leaving the 99 behind and chasing after us. A royal priesthood. Thank you very much. A holy nation, a people who belong to God. You were chosen to tell about the excellent qualities of God who called you out of darkness into his marvelous, that's one of my favorite words, marvelous light. And this is possible for every single person who puts their faith and their trust in Jesus. A new identity, chosen, royal priesthood, holy nation, belonging to God, out of darkness into light, and then a new purpose, chosen to tell about the excellent qualities of God. I love that translation of it, the New Living Translation, the excellent qualities of God. But what happens when we forget who we are in Christ? Interestingly, the second song that we sang today was called Who You Say I Am. And it's all about reminding ourselves of who God says we are and of who we are in him and because of him. Don't have to earn it. In fact, we've sung a lot of that this morning. I can't earn it. I don't deserve it. But God calls me to this. What happens when we forget who we are in Christ? What happens when we forget whose we are? What happens when the high of an encounter with God or that emotional happy feeling fades away? What happens when novelty wears off and it becomes a daily walking with Jesus, walking out this identity in the mundane and the boring, because let's face it, life can sometimes be like that, right? Oh, just me then. Okay, you tell me about it. What happens when we put on rose-tinted glasses and the old way of living suddenly looks attractive again? What happens when we take our eyes off Jesus, when we start to drift? What happens when we get away with something or maybe think we've got away with it? What happens then? Well, it leads to compromise and neglect in our lives. And that leads us away from God. No one intends to read their Bible less, pray less, make unwise financial relationship choices. No one suddenly wakes up one morning and thinks, oh, I don't really want to know God anymore or follow God anymore. But there's a gradual working away of those things that can happen. No one sets out to live the less than life rather than the abundant one that Jesus promises. I wanted to find out about this idea. And so I I looked it up on the internet. It's called the one degree philosophy. That if you were to just alter your course one degree, it would send you off in a completely different direction by the time you got to your destination. So we think one degree is like a tiny little movement. One degree won't matter that much. It won't really change or alter my course that much. But a one degree change can make a huge difference. So for example... Um, The illustration they give is is if a a plane flew from New York to San Francisco and was just one degree off its course, it would go one mile off course for every 60 miles flown. In other words, it would end up 43 miles away from where it needed to be. So let me put that into context. Someone is trying to get to Birmingham. They go one degree off and they end up in either Nottingham or Northampton. One degree far away from where they're meant to be. And this is exactly the situation we find ourselves in when we get to Nehemiah chapter 13. They've started to veer off course again. 
They have forgotten who they are in God. They have forgotten the promises that they've made to God. They've forgotten the things that they had discovered about who God is and how much he loves them. And this plan and this purpose and this identity and this love, they've forgotten and they've made some choices. Maybe it started as a one degree choice to not do this, but do this instead. And by the time we get to chapter 13, they have veered far off course. I almost wish the book of Nehemiah ended in chapter 12. (laughs) We had party poppers last week. For those who weren't here, you missed out. Joy, celebration, renewal, revival, rededication to God. It was a great moment, a high moment. What some people call a mountaintop moment. Yes. And then you almost kind of want to skip over chapter 13 because you realize it didn't stop there. You see, if only it could be a happily ever after moment. Anybody like the fairy tales? Happily ever after, it's a lie. Happily ever after, there is no such thing. And this is not a fairy tale. This is real humans living real lives in a real historical context with real jobs in a real city with real relationships. And sometimes they get things right and sometimes they don't. And sometimes they have these woohoo moments and then other times they have really difficult and challenging moments. Does that sound like anybody else's life in here? Yeah, it's the course of human nature. But the amazing news that runs like a thread through the whole of the Bible and the whole of the good news and the whole of history of God towards his people is that there is grace. There's a fresh start. There's a God who loves us and died for us and wants us, little old us, to know him and walk with him. The theme of our whole series has been a heart to build. And the focus has been about what God wants to build through us and with us. But I want us to think a little bit today about what God wants to build in us. God has a heart to build us. To build us up, to build us into his people, to build us in love and then to build with us. The identity part comes first. Who we are in him because of him comes first. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. We don't have to strive for it. It is already ours through faith in Jesus. And then he wants to build with us, filled with his spirit to live out our purpose, to partner in mission. In the book of Nehemiah, it was a physical place, a city, a temple, a wall. But now, and underlying that, it's about a people after God. And he's doing the same with us today. We might think about the externals of our life, but God wants our heart. And he wants us to know who we are in him. So turn to chapter 13 of Nehemiah or Nehemiah. Thanks, that's all you're getting. Seriously, because otherwise whoever uses the mic next, I'm sorry, there's going to be a bit of spittle. Okay. So hopefully you've got Nehemiah on your tablets, phones, devices, or actual paper Bible. Marvelous. Um, But before we jump into that, I want to set the context, because to understand how it ends, we've got to understand where they've come from. And in chapter 10, 9 and into 10, and a little bit into 11... The people of God have been brought back from the exile. They've done all these amazing things. And then they make some promises to God. They agree that they're going to submit to God's word. That means they're going to live the way that God wants them to live. They agree that they're going to support God's work. That actually part of what they do and what they're called to isn't just about living for self, but about contributing to the community. They've agreed that they're going to keep the Sabbath 
That means they're going to take space and time to meet with God and meet with one another. And they've agreed to live separate from the world. What that means is to live God's values with integrity in a world that maybe didn't hold the same values that they did. And between one and ten years later, we're not quite sure. Some commentators say it was a year later. Some say it was ten. But at some point, Nehemiah is gone and he returns. And when he comes back, he finds that they've broken all of these promises. And it's not so much about their behavior, although Nehemiah doesn't put up with any nonsense. And he deals with it swiftly and quite radically. If you have a beard in here and he found you messing about, he would have pulled you by the beard. Anyway, he was not messing about. I'm not looking at anyone. (laughs) But it wasn't about the behavior. It was about how far their compromise and neglect had led them away from God's best for them. God has the best for us. Not perfect. Not a life without challenge or troubles. I'm not saying that. But God has a plan and a purpose he wants to outwork for us. As he did for those people. And every time we kind of hedge our bets and maybe go a different way and think we've worked it out ourselves, we take ourselves away from God's best. And we take ourselves away from that call to partner with him in sharing the goodness of God with others. Remember we said earlier, the excellent qualities of God. And this is the situation that Nehemiah finds. It challenged their identity and their calling. And so as we go through the chapter, there's a pattern that takes place a number of times. Nehemiah discovers something that's gone wrong. He rebukes them. Essentially, he tells them off in no uncertain terms. Then he looks to respond in a way that would rectify the situation and sort it out. And then to purify, in other words, to make right again what was wrong in order that they may live for God again. And so this is what we find in this chapter. And through it, Nehemiah asks to be remembered by God, not because of the wall. Now, I'm not being funny. If in 52 days I had managed to get the walls of a city built, I think I'd probably want to say to God, yo, yo, God. Like, like I know I'm meant to be humble and everything, but seriously, we just like totally did that. If you could remember that, God, I mean, obviously and everyone else, that would be amazing. But that's not what Nehemiah says, because Nehemiah is more interested in the hearts of the people. And so he's like, God, remember the people that we've built. Remember the things that we've put in place so they can know you and follow you and live out your purpose on their lives. Not the external achievements, but the heart transformation that needs to continue to happen in every single one of our lives. He doesn't want to be remembered for building walls, but for building lives. And brick by brick, Nehemiah, in chapter 13, rebuilds the walls of their spiritual lives once again. So the first area is this whole idea of holiness. So from verse 4 to 7, I'm going to read it. It's going to be on the screen. It might be a slightly different translation. It says this, The priest named Eliashib took a large storeroom in the temple of God and gave it to Tobiah the Ammonite for his use. Now, for those of you who have been following along, you will recognize the name Tobiah the Ammonite. Okay? For those of you who are looking a little bit confused, I'll explain it in a minute. Eliashib was in charge of the storerooms. Tobiah was a relative of his. Before he gave it to Tobiah, it had been used to store many different things for use in the temple. The grain offerings, the incense, the vessels, the tithes of grain, new wine, olive oil for the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the offerings for the priests. As you read on down a little bit, it says, when I arrived, this is Nehemiah, 
I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done by giving Tobiah a room in the courts of the temple of the true God, a place he wasn't even allowed to enter because of his heritage. Now, when you read that, you're like, well, what's the big deal? He just gave him a room, right? Like, what's that about? But God had said this place was to be kept holy and the people had agreed. Eliashib was the one who was supposed to make sure that the things of God stayed the way they were supposed to be. And Tobiah the Ammonite, if you remember way back when in the first few chapters, actually came as an enemy to Nehemiah and tried to derail the whole work of God. And so now... The things that belong to God that should be in the sort of storage rooms around the temple and the courts, they're all kind of kicked out, left wherever, who knows. And Tobiah is given this place and space instead. We don't know whether it was a personal gain or convenience, but a person who on religious grounds was not even supposed to be anywhere near the building has suddenly moved all of his stuff in. But he hasn't done it under cover of darkness. He's done it with the permission of those who should have known better. I read at the start those verses from, um, that Peter wrote. We are described as a holy nation. The people had made a promise to God about these things. And the word holiness means set apart. Here in this context, it meant physical objects and a literal place. But now for us as followers of Jesus, we are to be part of the world and in the world, but hold different values to be kingdom people. We don't physically remove ourselves, but we live with God-centered values and integrity. And as we start to veer off course in the little things, we can end up far from God's best. And this is what happened. And Nehemiah is in no mood to mess about. A bit like Jesus coming in and throwing the money lenders out of the temple, Nehemiah's response in verses eight tonight is to immediately throw all of Tobiah's belongings out. I can just imagine him. In one of the um, versions that I was reading, it says, Nehemiah said, I was livid. He was so angry, righteously angry, that the things that they'd agreed, not that long before, they'd already gone back on their word. They'd said, you know what, the things of God, well, we can take or leave the things of God. We'll kind of shove them out of the way and we'll sort our own thing up instead. This is a people who had been exiled because they'd been disobedient, because they hadn't continued to follow God. And they'd gone through this whole process. And I wonder if Nehemiah had like a dope moment. Like, what? Why can't they get this? But the reality is that none of us get it at times. We all make mistakes. And so he comes in and he radically, I'd imagine him going, what's this? Right, that doesn't belong here. Get out. And I don't know if anyone was around to see it. But he physically deals with the situation himself. Chucks all of the things out. And then he gets all the things that belong to God back and he purifies them to make them holy for God again. You know, sometimes radical holiness requires radical measures. I mean, Jesus used this idea of cutting your hand off or gouging your eye out. Now, it's okay. I don't mean literally. (laughs) For those who are visitors, we're not that kind of church. I don't mean literally. But it was a radical response to compromise. If you find yourself veering into compromise, don't just go, oh, well, I started off down this road. It's not going to get me too far. Stop and deal with it. Only you can deal with it with God's help. You know, maybe your focus has drifted or shifted and you maybe don't feel as passionate for God as you once did. Or maybe you know there are areas of your life that you've compromised or that you suspect might not be honoring to God. 
Perhaps your priorities have shifted and you find yourself feeling a little bit uncomfortable. You know, God wants our hearts to be holy, to be pure, to, to be set apart so that God comes first. If he comes first in our heart, then the behavior, the external, all those things come after that. What is meant for God stays for God. And the amazing thing is that we don't have to strive or make this happen, but live in the reality of who we already are in him. We are a holy nation. We don't have to try to be. Jesus has made it possible for us to be called that because there's an exchange that's taken place, a transformation that needs to be worked out in the daily. And the Holy Spirit Have you ever thought about that? Not just the spirit of God, but the Holy Spirit lives within us to help us live out these things, to be more like Jesus. You know, like Nehemiah, once you discover something in your life, be ruthless in dealing with it and be expectant of God's grace. You know, God doesn't go, right, I've had enough of them. I've done all this stuff and they still not got it. Kick them out. He doesn't do that. He gives them another moment to try again, a fresh start, grace running deep. The second area that they're challenged in, the second brick that Nehemiah is like, right, let's put this back into the spiritual wall of your life, is this whole idea of worship and tithes. They had neglected in their giving, which led to the Levites, the leaders of the worship, neglecting their ministry to God. It says this, I also learned that the portion of the offering, verses 10 to 12, that belonged to the Levites had not been given to them. As a result, the Levites and singers who were responsible for leading God's people in worship returned to work. They neglected worship and they neglected to give God an offering. They went back on their promise when Nehemiah wasn't around to keep them accountable. Can't we be a bit like that sometimes? Well, no one's looking. No one knows how much I've read my Bible. (laughs) No one knows if I've prayed today. No one knows what I've given. No one knows what I'm doing. But the reality is the father knows and the father sees. And he's not like a headmaster, like, come on, they're stepping out. I'm going to get them. He's a loving father that is saying, look at your heart again. Come back to me. Make sure your priorities are centered around me because I already love you. You don't have to earn it or strive for it. It's already yours encouraging us to look at our priorities. He wants us to know how loved we are and then how to love him and others in return. He always initiates it. And that's why this part of it is so important because the Levite's job was to help keep people focused on God. Part of their job was to help keep people remembering who God is, to sing out the words of God, to sing out the character of God, to help with all of the things that made the sacrificial system work and being right with God. And when they're neglected, God gets pushed to the margins of life. And isn't that true of the human heart? If we neglect to worship and to respond to God, then he gets pushed to the margins. Nehemiah responds, by challenging those who were responsible. He says, therefore, I rebuked the officials asking, why has the house of God been neglected? You know, he's not letting them get away with blaming others or circumstance. Well, they didn't give me this and they didn't sort that out. He's going to them. Why has this happened? Then he reassembles them. It's a bit like Avengers Assemble. He gets them all back together. Gets the gang back together. Just me and the Avengers then. Okay. And uh, he puts them back to work. And he gets some honest people in, kicks out the dishonest ones in charge of the storerooms and in charge of the worship. 
And then proper worship and giving is restored. You know, we are called a royal priesthood. Levites are part of that whole thing. Ministering to God, worship to God, helping keep people spiritually on track. They were responsible for that. But the reality is we are responsible for that in our own lives. And I wonder if God's saying to you, come on, come back to worship. Life can be challenging, but you're responsible for your own heart before God and your walk with him and serving him the way you're called. We can create an environment to worship. We can put on prayer meetings and put on dwell evenings and have the band leading us in wonderfully new and ancient choruses and hymns. But I can't make you worship. Only you are responsible. Only you can choose to say, God, I want to put you in my right, your rightful place. God, I want to adore you. I want to give thanks. I don't want to make excuses. Yes, life is tough. Yes, there are challenges. And it's really hard to worship you in this season. But you are good, God. And if the very thing I can do is simply say you're good, then that's worship. It's about those heart priorities, about realizing that's part of our identity. We are made to worship him. Isn't that wonderful that we're made that way? Spiritually, there's a part of us that only comes alive when we say yes to Jesus. And again, the Holy Spirit helps us in that, to keep connecting with God in conversation and prayer, in worship, whether that's in our songs or in the things that we do every day ministering to God and it starts in each heart so maybe today one of the things to ask a reflection at the end of Nehemiah is is there anything that's neglected in that part of my life Lord that I need to change not anything huge it might just mean that you know I've just not spent time with you in the way that I should have done or I've just not done the things I said that I would and so my heart is getting a bit cold maybe in some areas or a bit weary or a bit tired God wants to come with his rain. I was so excited when I saw the rain today, his refreshing rain to pour refresh on us. I really felt this morning um, we were praying together and Rob uh, prayed this prayer. I was just about to pray and Rob beat me to it. And he was like, Lord, the rain has come like refreshing, refresh us today. And I was like, that's exactly what I was going to pray. I'm really sad we're not going to get to the picnic. Honestly, I even prepared salad yesterday. So, you know, actually, Sarah prepared salad yesterday. It's not got too far. I bought it. But anyway, anyway, moving on. So um, what was I saying? Oh, yeah, a royal priesthood. That's part of our identity is to worship God. Part of it is to be holy, to live right with God and for God. But part of it is to be a worshiping people who minister to God. The third area is neglecting the Sabbath. And this is a challenge about the priority of time. It says at the same time, I mean, I feel sorry for Nehemiah. He's come back. I actually really identify with Nehemiah. (laughs) He's been away. He's come back. He's really excited. And then he keeps going around and seeing things. Now, that's not the case for me because I've come back and you're all fantastic. But that sense of coming back and being excited to see what they're going to find. And it says then, at the same time, I looked around Judah and saw men working the wine presses on the Sabbath. Now, you're going to hear lots of when I was on sabbatical stories. But when I was on sabbatical... We went um, to a place in Israel that was set up like um, it would have been in the times of Jesus. And they had this wine press. And I think the kind of model hadn't changed all that much from Nehemiah's day. But it was hard work. 
to like thingy the grapes and then put them in the crusher and then do it the one time and then do it the next time. And you've got different levels of oil. It was all very exciting. Ask Katerina, she'll tell you. But it was hard work. So when he's saying, I'm seeing them do these things, it's not like, oh, I'm just sticking my glass out and getting a bit of olive oil or something. It's like, no, I'm choosing to engage physically in work and labor here. He says, others I found bringing large loads of grain to be loaded on donkeys, wines, grapes, figs. They brought every kind of load into Jerusalem on the Sabbath, no matter the season. I warned them about selling food on the Sabbath just as they were doing it. And then Nehemiah says this, why are you doing what you know is wicked? You're desecrating the Sabbath. Tell me how this is different from what we just confessed about our ancestors and their sin. This is the thing that provoked God's judgment and the destruction of the city. You are fueling the fire of judgment for Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. These are harsh words, but he's saying we've made a promise to God. He's written it into the very order of creation. The time and space set aside for God is part of what he's called us to. And you know, the way that we view Sabbath has remained the same, but it's also changed. Sabbath to the Jewish people is sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. And when we were in Jerusalem, we decided that we would go into the city from the hotel. And um, we did it the one night, no problem. We got on the tram, we went in. It was very lovely. We came back out. Then on the next night, me and my best friend had some friends who were also in uh, the city. And we thought, oh, we'll go visit them without realizing really that it was a Friday evening. And so literally in Jerusalem, everything stops. The tram stop, the buses stop. And there's even something called a Shabbat elevator. And I was like, what's one of them? They don't even press the buttons to go up and down the lift because they consider that work. So they get in the lift and it just stops on every floor and out they get wherever they need to go. And then they come back down again. Anyway, but to our mindset, This is something we just don't do or we don't understand. And so when we hear people like Nehemiah saying and being so strong in their reaction, it's because something that they had considered so special, so holy, so right before God, they had suddenly neglected. Not just because they couldn't be bothered, but to work instead. It was supposed to be a period of time set aside to rest from work, to gather with family and friends and remember who God is and what he's done. They were neglecting the spiritual part of their life and they were instead only focused on the material, possessions, wealth. Nothing wrong with buying and selling. It's wrong when it's more of a desire than to know God. They chose this over setting time to connect with God. It was a breaking of a promise they'd made and of a Ten Commandments. And as you read through, I, I would love you to go and read Nehemiah's response to this because he gets a little bit feisty. Now, we don't have time to do that this morning. Um, but he locks the city gates and he puts his own men to guard it. And even when they turn up outside, all the merchants, they have to sleep outside the city walls. And Nehemiah is shouting over the wall at them, stop it. Don't come in. It's not happening anymore. And they're like, what? Sleeping rough outside because they've like, you know, messed it up. Read it. It's brilliant. I love it. Um, and then he purifies the gates again. He's like, let's make this right with God again. Let's have that moment. And the reality is that we may not be under the strict laws of Sabbath as they were then, but it can be really easy to say, do you know what? I've worked really hard all day and I'm just going to come in and veg in front of the TV and I'm not going to bother reading my Bible today. We've all done it. 
Or maybe the TV isn't your thing. Maybe it's, I'm going to do something else. Housework. I don't know. (laughs) Or, do you know what? I've worked really hard this week. It's been crazy. Um, I think I'm going to miss church on Sunday because I really want to go and do something else instead. Kind of saying, you know, and then that becomes a pattern and a habit. I'm not saying the one-offs, you know, you can't have a whatever. But it's so easy to fall into that way. And it's just the one degree veering off course. They didn't intend to wreck the Sabbath. I imagine that it was something like, oh, I forgot to get that stuff on the donkey to get ready for the market. Do you give me a hand with that before we go and, you know, share the Shabbat meal? And then as they're going down the road, somebody else is like, oh, yeah, I forgot. That guy, that merchant, he said he was going to pop in today. We should just keep the city gates open. I don't want to miss that deal. (laughs) Like a good bargain. There wasn't this big intention, I'm sure. But the reality is that they had chosen to work and produce instead of stopping and resting and taking time with God. We read in Peter, we are chosen by God. And what that means is we're called into a special relationship with God which means that we need time to get to know him and let him speak his truth into our lives. Nehemiah is really practical and really spiritual. He puts out of sight and mind the merchants. He put boundaries in place again and he guards the boundaries and then he makes time. It says that he makes the Sabbath holy again. He makes time for people to meet with God again. So if you're wondering, God, how do I do that? Take a tip from Nehemiah. Do something practical Discover, have a little look. What's going on in my life, God? What am I doing? Have I got the balance right? Is there a different rhythm that I could be having here? Do something practical. It might mean going to bed earlier and getting up earlier. Or it might mean turning the TV off sooner. Or it might mean reading a book instead of, okay, some of you look horrified. It might mean listening to a podcast or, you know, sticking on something worshipful. (laughs) Instead of just that particularly in the West, this drivenness, this striving. This is why God said Sabbath is so important because we switch off from all of that and we let the Father speak and we let him pour out his love on us afresh and we let him speak his truth into our lives. Do something practical, set boundaries and accountability and make that time to listen to God. I promise you, you will not regret doing that. And then finally, moving on very quickly, the final area that they've compromised on is in relationships. Pursuing ungodly romance and getting involved in relationships that God has said no to. As you read down to verse 23, it just says, During that same time, I witnessed men from Judah marrying women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah or understand our laws, but only the languages of their people. Again, we may look at this and think, I'm not quite sure what's going on here. I don't really understand. You know, why, why do you think God made this commandment to not marry those different people? I mean, it seems weird to us, in, particularly in the 21st century. You know, when love wins, surely it's okay to marry, date, hang out with anyone we want to. But you see, this was a religious. It's not about race. It's not about politics. It's not even about tribe. It was about the, the religious thing of who are you putting first in your life? And God's people are called to put him first. And these other people didn't do that. They lived a very different way. They worshipped other gods. And so when they pursued those other relationships, they had already agreed to God that they wouldn't do that. In fact, it goes right back as far as the time as Abraham. I was reading that this morning. Right back into the thing of God to say, look, 
when you come into a relationship, think about who it is you're going to be in a relationship with. Do they love God? Do they know God? Do they share those same values? This is a religious command because God knows the human heart too well. We are a chosen people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God. When we say yes to God, we say yes to his will and his ways because he has the best for us as sons and daughters. He's not trying to trip us up or stop us have fun, but he wants the best for our lives. To marry a person from a different religion meant the children weren't brought up knowing God's ways or speaking God's language, and it affected the following generations. Ezra, the scribe that you thought about a few weeks ago, he had already had to deal with this once. And then again, it's the same thing that comes around. Oh, well, it won't matter if I just do this a little bit. It won't make that much of a difference. But when we compromise, it has a ripple effect. Relationships shape us, don't they? Absolutely. And if we pursue ones that aren't honoring to God, they will eventually cause us to reshape our priorities around them and that relationship rather than our relationship with God first. This is an identity issue of who they were for God. And Nehemiah, he rebukes them. He curses them. He beats them. Now, I'm not suggesting you do any of that. Just think of it in a spiritual context. (laughs) He pulled beards, just saying, guys. Like, And then he went again to purify all the things that had been made unholy. And this is the most fierce reaction from Nehemiah. And I think it's the most fierce because it's often our most vulnerable area of life, isn't it? So maybe take some time to ask the question, how are my relationships honoring God? Are we allowing ungodly negative influence in our lives? And actually, we need to think about what we're doing with that. Not saying that we don't have friends who are different. Of course we do. Love the diversity of living in a city like this is amazing. But a a marriage relationship was a covenant. It was an agreement. And God is meant to be at the center of that. And so he was saying, in your covenanted friendships, relationships, whatever they look like, think about those things. Do they love Jesus? The romantic relationships you're pursuing or considering pursuing. Do they value the same things? Because you're not like other people. You are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result of living in that identity, you can show others the goodness of God. Isn't that amazing that you and I can reflect the goodness of God to those around us? I think that's so cool because I'm not very good sometimes. I'm not. I could be really grumpy. I can get hangry. It's a bit good job when I'm having the picnic today. You might see that. It's been a long morning. You know, I can make mistakes and get things wrong. I'm not good, but in living out who I am in Christ, somehow in my imperfection and my brokenness and my failures, I can reflect the goodness of God to others. I can reflect, I love that earlier, the excellent qualities of God to those around us who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. And Nehemiah ends the chapter, ends the whole book, saying, oh God, my God, remember me with favor. In other words, remember all that I've done to bring people to you. It's not about the walls. It's not about the external. It's about the heart transformation of the people. This was far more important to Nehemiah and to God. That's why he responds so swiftly and so radically, because he wants them to live for God and with God in the way that God knew was best for them. You know, sometimes we maybe think, and I, 
I've done it in the past. Well, if I just change this and I just do this, and I just turn over this leaf, then maybe it'll be okay. But actually, I think we need to focus on who Jesus is and what he's done to save us because that's the starting point. I love the story of the wise and foolish builders. They get the same opportunities. They face the same storms in life. One builds on a rock, which is Jesus, the teachings, the words, the life of Jesus. The other builds on sands. And when those storms come, the house built on the sand falls away. But the house built on Jesus stands firm. Romans 8 verse 3 says this. The law of Moses, which is what they were following at the time, was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. All of this that's happened is about pointing forward to a day when God himself would come and make it possible for us to know God again. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son, Jesus, in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. It's not a striving for, it's a living in what we've already got from God. 